This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. It was an emotionally charged week in Canada as Pope Francis arrived for a six-day visit, specifically to apologize for the Catholic Church's involvement in the abuse Indigenous children lived through while attending residential schools after they were taken from their homes and families. On Monday, while filling in for Libby's Nimer and before the Pope's apology later in the day, Marissa Lennox was joined by Dr. Veldon Coburn, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Ottawa. It's a long time coming. So to place this sort of in perspective in the timing anyways, is that uh, we can go back to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement in around 2006, and then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work from 2007 to 2015. Even prior to then, I mean, prior to the calls to action, um, and, it, and it's a symbolic gesture, like, it, it doesn't, I, well, I can see that they've invested quite a bit of um, money into coming over here because it's not a, a cheap event in any case. But um, prior to this, the other two major churches that were responsible for running Indian residential schools, the United Church of Canada and the Anglican Church, had uh, extended their apologies and uh, whatever sort of warm wishes they wish to extend to Indigenous peoples. And the, lo- the last holdout, which is the Roman Catholic Church, had operated over 60% of Indian residential schools, had dug in its heels for a long time, up until now, and, and, and it really took a little bit of twisting. So, um, and, and we're getting to the point because the last Indian residential schools, federally run anyways, ran, uh, closed in the late 90s, mid-90s-ish, and even for survivors from, you know, 60, 70 years ago, they might have already passed on, and, and the, the number of survivors are dwindling, and their, their last dying hope for many is just to hear the words, I'm, I'm sorry, to, um, to to move onwards for some closure in their lives. So here we are in 2022, and um, it's been over 20 years since we had last had a, a papal visit, so... I mean, Pope Benedict prior did not come to Canada. It was Pope John Paul in the second visit, I believe, in 2000, 2000 perhaps, maybe. And um, there wasn't much time left. But that apology is important to you. And, 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 you, and you say it's symbolic. Uh, yeah, well, I, it's important for me in the sense, not, not personally necessarily, but for those people who went before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So to just really privilege their voice in this, to say that, this is what they sort of asked for, and I didn't go to Indian residential school myself, and uh, so it's, I don't. I believe it's my place to say what is required for their own personal healing. So many, many do, many want that. Um, other Indigenous people are still quite upset with the church. Uh, there's also a lot of non-Indigenous people who are quite upset with the church for um, certain crimes and what have you that may have been perpetrated, um, and it's it's around the globe too, like you know, in different countries as well. Like Ireland had a, a, a similar issue in the last couple of years with the mother-child homes as well. So with the um, 
the exorbitant number of deaths and, uh, you know, ushering away young pregnant uh, mothers to yeah. either, well, steal their children away or, or let their children yeah. perish. Um, and they had their five-year inquiry over in Ireland that wrapped up in, I believe, 2019. So uh, there, there, there's a, a diverse sentiment amongst Indigenous people. What does reconciliation really look like when there is such a diverse, you know, there doesn't seem to be much of an agreement on what is needed to actually get there? Yeah, so going back to, say, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 calls to action, is there's quite a bit of uh, what you would say is symbolic, but other people would say, well, you know, even though it's symbolic, this is actually an action on behalf of the Pope, His Holiness coming here to utter the words, I'm sorry. So for those people who are just holding out for that, I, I think that would suffice for them. But there are other people who might legitimately say, well, you damaged my my life and you damaged a lot of the prospects for my life. I never got to live a normal life. If it wasn't for your participation in this colonial venture, Perhaps I would have probably had a, a better life. Whatever the Pope might say, I'm sorry, and, and it was a Catholic order, um, it, it won't heal any of their wounds. Dr. Veldon Coburn, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Ottawa. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We Ontarians were collectively horrified to find out there were 90 long-term care homes still without air conditioning in residents' bedrooms during the last heat wave. Legislation was passed late last year at Queen's Park requiring all 627 Ontario nursing homes to provide air conditioning for residents in their bedrooms. And yet owners of 15% of the province's long-term care homes failed to meet the June 22nd deadline. The new long-term care minister, Paul Calandra, has issued a statement blaming supply chain problems and COVID outbreaks for reasons why some homes still don't have air conditioning in the bedrooms. Unacceptable? Absolutely, say members of our Zoomer squad. Marissa was joined to discuss by Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, chief policy officer and chief operating officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. This year, of course, there was legislation in place that demanded that all long-term care homes have uh, air conditioning by now, and many of them uh, don't. 90, I think, uh, uh, we heard on the news uh, recently. And uh, what goes to the whole point of uh, whether or not regulations are really enforced. Here again, we're seeing another regulation in place trying to protect seniors, but they're not being, uh, uh, they're not being enforced and uh, probably not being uh, uh, supervised or reported in any way. And what? So what's the what's the penalty? And and what are the what are the reasons? Do all ninety homes have valid reasons? A lot of questions from this. They gave them until the end of this year, I think, to put in these air conditioning units. Is that fair? I mean, is that couldn't it have been done sooner? Couldn't they have put a t- tighter time frame on that one? Well, I'm sure the pushback they got, as we all know, many of the uh, long-term care, care homes are very old. I would rather that the government have said, you must do it by next summer, and here's a grant you can apply for, so we'll help you uh, help you get it done. That mm-hmm. might have had action uh, more, uh, uh, more quickly. This government has been really slow at uh, uh, fast at making promises and slow at real action. Peter, have you heard any compelling excuses or have you reached the point like me where you're just frankly fed up? (laughs) 
Well, I, the, the excuses I've heard are, are um, <clears throat> like, like Bill said about the wiring. So that's one issue that needs to be gone around. And also um, another one that they're bringing up is supply chain issues. The, the, the units just aren't available. There's a demand for air conditioning worldwide. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously on a wait list or, or so they say. And then the third issue is actually getting workers into these homes. Um, but, you know, uh, Marissa, the, um, I remember a couple of years ago there was an outcry when, when the, um, the older elementary schools in Toronto uh, didn't have air conditioning. And it was a very hot June that year. And, you know, it, within two weeks, all the schools had air conditioning. All the rooms did. So mm-hmm. um, th- that's to your point about how if children are, are affected, um, action is very quick mm-hmm. and... Um, here, it doesn't seem as quick. Their obstacles aren't, you know, they keep popping up, but um, it, it doesn't seem that they're they're trying to push through. I don't buy the COVID excuse for one minute. It's not like a home's been in an outbreak for two years. Right. But you right. know what, Bill, I, I don't know that you've spent any time in a long-term care facility. Certainly I have. And I can tell you generally it's an unpleasant experience depending on the facility. Many don't even have windows that open. Then add to that potential for lockdowns. You're oh. unable to leave your room. You're stuck in there without AC. It's frankly inhumane. And I have to ask, is this what ageism looks like? Well, and that was, <laughs> you read my mind. That's exactly the point I was uh, going to make next. It's just another example of ageism that we don't put the concerns for our older citizens uh, ahead of, of other things we're thinking about, even don't, don't even keep them, uh, keep them in, in mind. And, and, you know, there are some, uh, you know, it's true that there's some, some real difficulties when it comes to putting in uh, air conditioning. For instance, if you're, a family member, and you would like to put in some kind of air conditioning unit. Many of the uh, homes don't have windows that open, or if they do have windows that open, they're the crank type that go out only uh, 12 inches on a 45 degree angle, which means you can't put one of those units uh, in the in the window. So the whole lack of uh, planning and forethought when many of these buildings were being built year, years ago. I'm just hoping that we see with the, the rash of uh, new renovations and buildings we're seeing now uh, that the, they've taken in this into account. We're not going to go through the same thing again. And it really does make you think when you're considering a home for a loved one to do your research, go through that building, make sure it has a C as a priority. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy Officer and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, what to expect from Rogers after the massive July 8th outage. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In the wake of the massive Rogers outage on July 8th, members of the House of Commons Industry Committee held two hearings where Rogers executives weighed in on what happened and what's being done to prevent any future events. 
Others who testified included Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne and members of the CRTC. As the hearings were getting underway, Marissa Lennox spoke with Ben Klass, telecom researcher and Ph.D. candidate at Carleton University, about what to expect. Well, I'm glad to see such a broad response. You know, we have the minister, the CRTC, and the parliament all looking at this. Any one of those things on its own would be inadequate, but I think the fact that all of them are looking into this is a good sign because this is a really complicated problem. We certainly need more competition. We certainly need more regulation. I think the companies need to have their feet held to the fire by the political scene in order for there to be some real change. What would that look like? How do you create more competition? How do you allow for it? Is that the CRTC? Yeah, so the the CRTC um, takes direction from the government, and they are uh, sort of in the process of improving the the regulations surrounding competition. Uh, I understand that there are ways to make uh, uh, the, the arrangements that support competition in telecom more resilient so that people will have a a broader range of choice. And for instance, in the future, you could see uh, having the ability to switch networks when one goes down to the other just by using an app on your phone. Should the government, because of how big a problem this was, you know, can we expect the government to be more involved in regulating this industry? Is that what's needed? Uh, To be frank, I think so. Um, The minister's response today uh, doesn't lend a lot of um, support to the idea that they may be going with that approach. I mean, they're taking measured approach, but he was careful to blame uh, Rogers and to suggest that a phone call to the CEOs would be enough to uh, bring things into action. So we'll have to wait and see what the uh, what the government actually does here. But I think the telecommunication is uh, too important and the companies that are providing it are, are essentially at this point too big to fail. Uh, so if they can't do it on their own, you know, and this isn't the first time Rogers has gone out in the past little while, uh, then there really isn't any other choice than to have uh, some public oversight. Do you think one of the outcomes will be to open up competition, say, for um, business, uh, companies in the U.S.? Will that is that possible? Yeah, so we do already have a, a competition allowed from the U.S., but there hasn't been a lot of appetite for it. You know, I think that um, one thing the government should be doing here is taking stock in the competition we do have. You know, you see that Rogers is trying to take over Shaw, and they need the permission from the government to do it. I really think that that should be a non-starter. Uh, you know, for a number of reasons, but in particular, because we can see if Rogers had already taken over Shaw, it would have been that many more people, you know, several million more who would have been affected by this. It's my firm view that we need to have more diversity uh, in our markets, more decentralization, and that that's a good way of protecting it against and containing these types of things when they happen. As I understand, the Competition Bureau is trying to stop that. Do you think we can expect that this outage might impact that deal? You know, when the merger was first announced, I would have said that it was going through no matter what. But uh, a lot of uh, a lot of sort of obstacles have come up uh, over the course of this year long process. And I think, um, you know, that the best thing for the country would be for the Competition Bureau to stop the merger outright. Um, But there's other ways to promote competition. And, you know, the CRTC encourages sharing of networks. Um, Certain components of networks are shared with competitors. And there, I understand ways to technically arrange that to maximize the independence of those competitors. So, for instance, uh, you know, if Rogers Core Network went down and a company like Tech Savvy was just renting their towers, uh, people who are on that other system wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily be affected. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think to the extent that we have more competition, it means that when these things do happen, perhaps less people will be affected by them. Uh, there- and companies like Interact 
you know, um, might have alternate supply instead of having to rely on one or two giant companies. 30 seconds before I wrap, but I have to ask as a sort of final thought, what does it say that Canada's biggest telecom provider messes up like this? What does that say? Uh, I mean, I think it's, what it really is telling us is that this is a when these types of problems are going to happen and not if they're going to. Uh, you know, I look very skeptically on promises to make uh, sort of technological innovations that will make this type of thing impossible in the future. And I, what I, I'd like to see is, uh, you know, investing some human capacity in uh, coming up with solutions to mitigate the harms and to make them uh, sort of less large in scale when they do eventually happen. Ben Klass, telecom researcher and Ph.D. candidate at Carleton University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There was a high-profile endorsement this week for Pierre Poiliev in his bid to become the next federal conservative leader. Former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper put out a video on social media in which he backs Pierre Poiliev as the candidate best suited to take over the party. Harper says Poiliev has talked about pressing economic issues like debt and inflation and has presented solutions that are rooted in sound conservative ideas. Marissa discussed the development on Tuesday with our Recovering Politicians panel. Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister, and Lisa Raitt, a former federal conservative deputy leader. I think what it is, it's a signal to the future. It's recognizing in his estimation, the prime minister's estimation, that Pierre is going to win. And as a result, the next part of the evolution is bringing the party together. And everybody respects Stephen Harper within the conservative movement without a question. So for him to come forward and say, look, this is the guy I'm going to vote for. I think he's the right guy. And then think about the next election was a really clear sign that Pierre's team is already thinking about how do I bring everybody together. I also think it may be an effort to get a, a, lo- a, a strong win on a first ballot, which of course would send a signal to everybody as well that uh, Pierre definitely has control of the party. But he was already the front runner. Charles, did party members really need Harper's endorsement to give their official support to Pierre? Does this help him at all? Well, I think it's going to help Pierre in a big way uh, because, as Lisa mentioned, uh, you know, Stephen Harper is well respected within the Conservative Party. Sheree has already come back, however, mm. stating that we respect the decisions by any individual. But again, Sheree is reaffirming or reaffirming that there is need for unity. And uh, while Pelev may win the leadership race, he believes that Sheree can actually win the general election and win Canada. So this is where uh, Mr. Harper has come forward saying we need unity and we need to stand together. And Sheree, of course, is still pushing back, saying but that's not going to be enough to win Canada. Well, he didn't push back that hard, Charles, because his tone, I found it to be pretty cautious, right? He said, uh, you know, Harper was successful in uniting the Conservative Party of Canada, but he's made a personal choice. He and his supporters are always welcome in the CPC. I I, I, found... I thought that was a very smart thing to do. Again, Charest is coming forward saying, hey, we're all in this together, and he's reaching out for unity, notwithstanding what may fall out, but he's making people, or he's trying to... I, encourage people to appreciate that Pelev is maybe too much to the extreme, and that's not going to win Canada. That's the that's Jerry's play, and Harper is suggesting otherwise. Howard, your reaction? I mean, I would have expected him to be a little more defensive, but maybe Charles has a point there. Well, I, I think Jerry understands how the conservative leader is chosen, and he understands that uh, among 
some conservatives, Stephen Harper, may still have a lot of following. I think Stephen Harper still wants to see his stamp on the party. And, of course, that's part of why he spoke up and why I think Pierre Polyevre is happy that he spoke up. But I, I think Jean Charest, uh says, look, you know, there there are other conservatives that we need to speak to. And there are other voters who are not necessarily conservatives that we need to speak to. I think Jean Charest is, is being, uh, how shall I say, subtle uh, and, and smart. And Kaliavra is, is uh, using, you know, the avenue that's open to him. Lisa, you served in federal politics. Maybe you can shed some light on how common or otherwise uncommon it is for a prime minister to wade into a leadership race. Common. There's no question about it. Um, but I think this is an uncommon race, to be honest. Uh, you know, I was thinking about when Andrew Scheer won or when Aaron O'Toole won, neither time did the, did Prime Minister Harper come out and say, well, this is the guy that I like. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think what it points to is that this is a really divisive race. I mean, we know it's a divisive race. If you take a look at what Pierre put out yesterday through some surrogates that, you know, Mr. Charest is a loser. He can't win elections. I mean, that, that is crazy to see that happening within the party because you're clearly generating memes for other parties to jump on in case of a general election. And I think, um, for me, Mr. Harper coming in makes sense because I think he's trying to, before the actual results are, are read out, he's trying to calm the waters and, and find that unifying piece. He's saying that he's voting for Pierre. That's fine. And Mr. Charest's response is still on that case of unity. But this has been a very acrimonious, uh, a very damaging, I think, um, race between amongst all the candidates. Lisa Wright is a former federal conservative deputy leader. Howard Hampton is a former Ontario NDP leader. And Charles Souza is a former Ontario Liberal finance minister. Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel heard every Tuesday after the noon news. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back. With Jane Brown. Fight back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bill in Toronto called about the Rogers outage everyone is still talking about. How many actual uh, carriers are there in the States? And if you look at it, there's really four major ones, maybe five major carriers. And they do have 10 times the population we've got. So we've got three carriers, and, and they've got five. Really, how much more competition is there in the States? The, the reason their phones and everything are cheaper, it's because of economy of scale. You know, th- th- their revenue base is 10 times larger than ours. Lucy in Etobicoke phoned about the healthcare worker shortage Ontario is experiencing. I read in an article um, that uh, there was a woman trying to get in. We have a shortage of uh, 
family physicians, and yet with an 85 overall average in her GPA over four years, which is very difficult to achieve, and 88 in her MCAT, she was turned down by institution after institution and ended up finding a position in the States. They need to open, if they want to address the issue of nursing and doctors, they need to open more spaces in these professions. They are restricting the amount of space, and so then they are creating a shortage artificially. If they would just open them up, they would be able to get more people in those professions. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph who phoned about the federal conservative leadership race and the recent endorsement of Pierre Poiliev by former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper. Poiliev can probably win enough conservatives and he's got enough votes. But can Poiliev actually win the voters across the country in a general election? I don't think so. John Shree doesn't think so. you got to remember that Poiliev and Harper were originally from the Reform Party. So... Stephen Harper is just supporting another Western guy um, in this thing. But um, and the liberals are the only ones that are smiling in this whole thing, because if Polyev uh, wins the conservative leadership, um, they're going to go on the attack in the next election. And uh, no matter whether it's Justin or Christian Freeland, um, John Charest, as far as I'm concerned, is the only one that has a logical um, chance of... Um, of actually uh, winning the next general election for the Conservatives. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.